So much news is breaking that we are getting a late start on our latest episode of This Week in the CLE, but we had Governor Mike DeWine and Cuyahoga County Executive Armin Budish stop by, meaning you'll hear directly from them a bit later in the podcast. I'm Chris Quinn, here with co-host Laura Johnston, and I've got to say, Laura, my head is spinning from everything that's going on. Perhaps the most interesting thing we've heard is how Armin Budish proposes to spend all those millions of dollars the county is getting from the companies that created the opioid crisis. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing that Budish said today was that it's really not a windfall and that it's really a small amount when you compare to all of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they need to to treat kids with foster care and um, medical issues. Yeah, you know, he says the cost of this crisis dwarf the settlements, which is hard to believe because they're getting it's 20 million and counting so far. But he's saying the cost is in the hundreds of millions. So he and the county council president, Dan Brady, are working out whether they need to ask voters for a, an increase in the social services tax or just a renewal next year. Part of that's going to depend on how the big trial goes with the companies that haven't settled. That begins in a few weeks. Based on the numbers he went over today, though, I think a tax increase does seem likely. Next year, it looks like we'll have a bunch of tax increases on the ballot, and the Greater Cleveland Partnership is going to look at all of them before it decides what to endorse. Uh, we've got the Cleveland schools talking about one. The library system might have another. Plenty of proposals to keep us busy in future podcasts. All right. Well, before we get to our discussion and analysis of all this news, let's go over the top stories of the past week. How about you go first? Okay, big one. Governor Mike DeWine has pretty seriously changed his strategy for keeping guns out of the hands of people who should not have them. He has come up with a proposal that is more novel than the red flag law and universal background checks he first discussed following the Dayton massacre. What he has formally proposed this week is to add alcohol and drug abuse to the reasons people could be sent to institutions for treatment, which would deprive them of access to guns. And instead of universal background checks, he proposed a voluntary system in which gun owners could get background checks done on prospective buyers so they could know they were selling their firearms in good faith. Sellers who do not use those checks could risk criminal charges or civil lawsuits if the buyers of their guns committed mayhem with them. All of that money that Cuyahoga County is collecting from the pharmaceutical companies that created the opioid crisis would go to treatment of addicts in addition to agencies that have borne the brunt of the crisis, such as the county medical examiner's office. That's according to the plan announced Thursday by County Executive Armin Budish and Council President Dan Brady. Part of the strategy is to reduce the number of people going to prison because of drugs by getting them treatment. The plan, involving $20 million, also would aim at keeping school kids off of drugs. The biggest amounts, however, go to helping people get off of their drug habit, with nearly $5.5 million paying for inpatient addiction treatment. We have good news for the many people in Cuyahoga County working to reform the bail system so that it no longer discriminates against the poor. Cleveland Municipal Court's one-year experience proves that reform works. It treats people fairly, saves taxpayers money, and largely ensures that people show up for court hearings. Of defendants who were given pretrial services like ankle bracelets instead of having to post bonds, 19% failed to appear for scheduled court hearings. Of people who did not get those services, more than half failed to show up. And only 8% of the 1,100-plus defendants who received pretrial services have been accused of criminal activity since their release. All of this comes from the chief judge of the municipal court, Michelle Early. 
Just under 2 million adults in Ohio could lose their health insurance if a federal appeals court strikes down Obamacare. That's the verdict from the Kaiser Family Foundation. It all comes down to pre-existing conditions. Obamacare requires insurance companies to cover them. Absent Obamacare, people with cancer, mental health disorders, arthritis, and other ailments might not be covered. Kaiser says in Ohio it works out to 29% of adults who are not on Medicare. People love the Goodyear blimp, and for the first time, they can spend a night inside the blimp gondola. Goodyear is listing the blimp on Airbnb for three nights later this month. The blimp will be docked in Mogador and will not take flight, but the blimp captain will give the guests a tour of the aircraft and the docking area. The list will go live October 15th for the nights of October 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. Okay, well, so are you going to try it? I mean, I've never known anybody more eager to try the new experience. This one seems like a Laura Johnston special. I have no desire to spend a night in a blimp in in a hangar in Mogador, so no. Unless it's flying. I mean, that would be a different story. Okay, well, let's bring our gaze down to the news before us. You ready to bring in Courtney Estoffi to talk about all of the Cuyahoga County news? She's got a lot. Let's go get her. Welcome to the podcast, Courtney. Hello, hello. Armin Budish was in to visit this week with how he wants to spend the opioid money the county is getting through its lawsuits in federal court. So let's cut to the chase. Courtney, what's his plan? Yeah, so there's about $23 million there in spendable money, um, Mr. Budish said, and it's going to be used for a variety of programs, you know, really aimed at, at, at the opioid epidemic. So It looks like it's mostly aimed at addiction. I mean, the bulk of it is to try and get people off of addiction. I mean, they're giving some money to the, the, the medical examiner because all the dead bodies he's got to deal with, but... It was surprising at how much of the focus of this was on agencies that try and get people off of their addiction. Yeah, uh, the major part of this is the residential treatment, outpatient programs, partial hospitalization programs, working with the Adams Board, working with St. V's, the, the local hospitals, and and really trying to zero in on, on treating folks suffering from addiction. You know, one of the things that people have talked about since the beginning of this crisis is how hard it is to get people off addiction and how limited the number of beds there are for for people needing inpatient treatment. E- even with this, we're still talking a drop in the bucket, but this does significantly increase the number of beds? Yeah, so it, it does bump up the number of beds um, by like 30-some with—, with the Adams board, but that allows them to treat more than just 30 clients in a year, right? That's, I mean, several hundred more clients in a year. I believe, you know, 260 additional clients in one program, another 300 clients in another program. So like you said, it's a drop in the bucket, but it is expanding the capacity. He and and the council president, Dan Brady, came in to unveil this. Clearly, they've been working together, so you'd expect it would pass easily in the council. But this is only dealing with the money that they've gotten in settlements so far. And, of course, for the the seven companies that have chosen not to settle and are going to court, we have a big trial starting in a couple of weeks. Uh, Verdicts elsewhere have been much bigger than the settlements Cuyahoga County has gotten. Would, Would you expect if they get 
hundred million or two hundred million dollars out of the lawsuit, they would just expand what they're spending here. Did they address that? It sounds like that there is the thought to expand some of these programs that were announced on Thursday, but it also sounds like they're leaving the door open for programs beyond that as well. We uh, did take the time when when Armin Budish was here to ask him about the strategy that seems to be emerging in the lawsuits and the idea that people representing the pharmaceutical companies are going to attack the quality of county services, almost like they're arguing that the county services are partly to blame. And Armin Budish had some sharp words in response to that question. I would be very surprised if they're able to show that somehow uh, any of our county departments were responsible for distributing, for manufacturing these, uh, misleading the public, including doctors and others, as to the addictive nature of these drugs, and then going ahead and distributing many, many times the number of pills uh, than were uh, uh, needed. So if they can show that the jail distributed multiple pills and manufactured these uh, uh, devastating drugs and didn't tell anybody the addictive nature, I would like to hear that. So what do you think, uh, Courtney? It sounds like fighting words. It sounds like the county is ready to go to the mat in this lawsuit. Oh, yeah. They're gearing up, and they know what their message is going to be there, and they conveyed that to us today. Okay. It'll be interesting to see uh, to see how they decide to deal with any extra money that they end up getting from uh, from this thing. So we have a couple interesting court stories to talk about, and one is about bail reform. Yay, bail reform! That's been one of our pet projects at Cleveland.com, to get bail reform in Cuyahoga County common pleas courts, and it's been moving in fits and starts. This week, we had some great news from Cleveland Municipal Court, which started its own brand of bail reform a year ago. So, Courtney, can you first talk about what the Muni Court has been doing? Yeah, Judge Early was telling us about their program that's been going on for, for 12 months now, and really the goal is to get people out of jail without forcing them to pay bonds that they may not be able to pay. So, you know, that that affects folks unequally who, who don't have enough money to pay to get out of jail. So this program really lets people, um, you know, it puts them on ankle monitors. It, 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 it requires court supervision where they're regularly checking in with the court and, and keeping in contact. There's reminders of court dates to make sure that they show that they show up and still appear. Judge Early said through using these alternative methods that the city of Cleveland's reduced its jail population by half in a year. So we have the chief judge saying that, yes, bail reform works. And as we mentioned at the top of the podcast, the benefit for the public is people released on these pretrial services are much more likely to show up for court hearings, much less likely to commit new offenses. You'd hope this would spur all the people trying to bring reform to the county courts to get the job done. You had a story this week that seemed to show some optimism from Armin Budish that he thinks 2020 is the year uh, it, it involved his budget. Yeah, he put forward in his budget for 2020 and 21 a million dollars annually to fund these type of programs. But the big question mark here is, you know, when that's going to be implemented and exactly what the specifics of that program look like. Um, but 
Armin Budish has committed to put that money forward. So that's a step we haven't really arrived at until now. As Chris said, the move to get this done on the county level is bogged down. The chief judge of the county courts, John Russo, promised three years ago to lead the effort, and for a long while he did. Lately, though, it seems dead in the water. Yeah, so I think everybody's just kind of waiting for those specifics in that plan and then waiting for it it to be put into action and waiting for john russo to stop being administrative judge which will happen in january right yeah so hopefully whoever follows him can uh, move that ball forward a whole lot of others are in this thing too the county prosecutor the public defender as we said buddhist they all want it to happen we originally spurred this action back in 2016 by saying we would start calling out the individual judges who were blocking it we might have to do that again if 2020 doesn't get this done Okay, Courtney, let's talk about the other big news out of the court, the creation of a high-risk domestic violence docket. This is something Judge Sherry Midday has been trying to start for a while, and now the court has a $1 million grant to make it happen. Yeah, the county was one of only a few to get this grant across the United States, and it's really aimed at high-risk domestic violence cases. You know, that includes ones where weapons are used and strangulation, which is, according to Judge Midday, one of the highest indicators of this she she called it a pre-homicide docket so this is looking at those really serious cases where there's risk of further violence i had coffee with judgment day not long ago and she described how she has been keeping her own docket of these cases she brings these guys back at regular intervals to have conversations with them about how their lives are going how they're dealing with stress and having them all together in the room talking about their struggles seems to do something collectively to them to kept, keep them behaving, uh, as does the knowledge that they're going to be facing the judge regularly to answer the questions. What makes this version of the docket different? Yeah, so, well, first of all, this is a non-voluntary docket. It's not like people opt in. If you're, if you're in this category, you're going to go on this docket. Um, it will also have specially trained and dedicated uh, a prosecutor and a public defender, a coordinator, and and a probation officer who will make sure that the conditions of those bonds are really being stuck and, and adhered to by the, the defendants. Is that what the million dollars is going to go towards, like training those people? A large part of it is my understanding, yeah. Okay. What about the victims? How do they fit into this? So Judge Madej also said that a big part of this is really aimed at tackling... Many, many domestic violence cases get dropped. Victims get scared. Things are going on outside the courtroom that maybe prompt them to not want to continue testifying and cooperating in the case. Part of this docket is aimed at really making them feel safe and getting the supports they need, which ultimately, you know, hopefully means they continue cooperating and and moving the case forward that way. You know, we talked about the money that Budish wants to put into bail reform and the effort he wants to make to get people off of addiction. Part of his motive for both of those is to reduce the jail population. As we all know, crowding at the jail has made the place dangerous. Budish has been under the gun to make it a safer place. He says he's got the population down under 1,800 from more than 2,200, which is something, but he wants to keep going. So in addition to the million that he put in for bail reform, he's also budgeting some money to hire more jail guards? Yeah, the goal is right now, I believe it's about 660, 670 jail guards, and he wants to keep hiring up to at least 700, he said, and that will you know, help fill slots that are opening up through attrition or through folks being promoted to higher positions within the jail. 
but it's really making sure that the staffing is there that's needed. So the jail might also have another new thing, a new food supplier. Uh, the price of the contract was proposed for $18.6 million. That's a whole lot of money for jail food. Yeah, and it's over five years, so that's not a whole lot but it is a lot of money. And this has been one of the Buddhist administration's longtime goals since everything started kind of coming out about the jail a year ago. This has been one of the fixes they've really wanted to get in place. It's been a long process to even get to this point to introduce the contract to council. But, you know, inspectors last month found that the jail food has improved. Um, and it is much better than where we were at a year ago. But like I said, this has been part of long-term plans to really shape up and and bring in a new food pro- program. So there. was there a taste test before they they put the contract in front of them? If there is, let me know. I'd be down <laughs> to try to. All right. So getting back to Budish's proposed budget, what else stands out? Did he explain about this tax increase that we're talking about with Health and Human Services? Um, I know you talked about the opioid money, and Budish did address this when he was in about whether or not we'll see a request for more money for that next year. Yeah, so his budget assumes a replacement on the current, on one of the two current HHS levies, but that would bring in about $12 million more a year. Um, but he also, you know, he, he, he's saying that the money is needed. The county has, um, there's 2,900 kids in county custody, which is up by almost a thousand from what we had four years ago mm-hmm. those costs keep going up and he just says those costs continue but he, to he rise he hasn't said that he's definitely that we're definitely going to see a, a request right i well, mean no, it's he's in definitely bu- going to see a renewal renewal but he hasn't right. said an he increase. hasn't said an increase well his budget assumes that there's a replacement which would bring in 12 million dollars right. more and he also threw out comments about other programs in this sphere that might have to be done away with if we just stick to just a replacement levy. So that's somehow levy. maybe yeah. implying I, beyond that too. Oh, was, oh, okay. Wow. Okay. I was surprised based on what I'd seen before he came in to see us that he seemed to very much soft pedal the tax increase idea when he sat down with us. That that both he and Dan Brady said they're going to have a campaign because they have to replace this tax. But so, so they're moving in that direction, and they could use it for an increase, but they haven't figured it out yet. And I, I was impressed that they said they that the outcome of the opioid trial and how much money they get out of that could color the thinking. I mean, I, I after watching them uh, and listening to them, I think that the likelihood of them asking for tax increase is pretty high, which which will be a hard sell if they get a hundred million dollars out of this opioid trial, and I think they know that. But but they weren't as emphatically in favor of a big tax increase as I thought they were going to be when they came in. I I was ready to to ask a lot more serious questions about the need for a tax increase. But they were right off the bat saying, look, we don't know. We don't know. We have to see. We don't know how much money we're going to get for this. They did say that what they've gotten so far is a tiny fraction of what they need to deal with all of the damage that the county has suffered from opioid addiction. And I don't think you can question that. Treating addiction costs a lot of money. And they pointed out that regardless of what they get, it's a one time and then it's done. Right. And the HHS levy is there to keep funding these programs going forward. And, you know, during the budget presentations, the county executive did say, 
there are needs in that sphere outside of the opioid epidemic. You have an aging population. Um, he, he referenced his universal pre-kindergarten program, that that might be on the right, line if there isn't a, bucks a infusion of cash. That. Yeah. The, the, uh, the other thing we asked about was, are they coordinating with all the other government entities likely to ask for tax? The county library is considering a tax, apparently. The Cleveland schools are going to be asking for yet another capital tax, apparently. Uh, and there's one other, I can't remember what it is, but it's floating out there. So there's the possibility, if you live in, in certain areas, you're going to face three or, or, well, three taxes, I guess, on your ballot. If you live in Cleveland, you'd have the school tax and the county the library tax. Uh, and they really, they said they're tracking it, but they're they're not really paying attention. That's just going to make it harder. And with the Greater Cleveland Partnership, the big chamber of commerce for the region, saying they're planning to put all the taxes through a much greater rigor before they endorse or recommend against them. I think they're going to recommend against them. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just endorse or don't endorse. Uh, this could be a very tough sell. Well, and it's a bit of a gamble. If folks aren't on board with it, they lose um, about $105 million. They lose the original. Uh, every yeah. year. So it is a gamble. If they just went for a replacement, which Cuyahoga voters almost always approve, or uh, renewal. If we went for a renewal, nothing changes. It's not a tax increase, and people are good with that. But whenever you do something that increases the bill, it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Well, Courtney, thanks for coming on. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. And in a moment, we'll talk with politics editor Jane Cahoon about Mike DeWine's gun proposal. You're listening to This Week and the CLE. Welcome back, Jane Cahoon. Thank you. All right, let's dive right into gun control. After the Dayton massacre, Governor Mike DeWine surprised a lot of people when he offered more than thoughts and prayers and talked about the need to strengthen gun laws to keep guns out of the hands of potentially dangerous people. DeWine is a Republican, and we have not heard statements like that from Republicans very often. His proposal this week, though, is different than what he originally said. So let's start with the original, Jane, or what we thought we'd get, a red flag law and universal background checks. Correct. Originally, he proposed near universal background checks for gun sales to close those loopholes with private sales and online sales and so forth. And he also proposed some version of a red flag law. He really didn't call it a red flag law, but it would allow authorities to seize weapons from people deemed to be dangerous to themselves or others with certain due process in there for um, a hearing before a judge and so forth. Okay, so what did he actually propose? Well, instead of the red flag, he's sort of going pink. He is <laughs> <laughs> wants to enhance the state's pink uh, slip law. That's where you can involuntarily commit someone who's thought to be dangerous. But the way the law is now, you can't do that just on the basis of somebody who has uh, drug or alcohol problems. So this would add that. So you could, you know, when a mom says, I think my kid is dangerous and he's stashing these weapons, et cetera, or he's uh, on drugs or whatever, they can... They can go in and involuntarily commit that person and separate them from their weapons. Right. What was um, in, 
what was interesting about that because when they first said it i'm thinking well alcoholism is is uh means i'm a danger to myself man there are going to be a lot of people lose access Mm -hmm. to guns but they said you don't get that commitment unless you've also said i want to kill people i want to kill myself or there's some other threat but but the other part of this is is the minute a judge deems you to be a danger to yourself or others for whatever reason you're prohibited from having a gun by state law as it exists now. Right. So I think he feels it would accomplish the same thing that the so-called red flags, uh, red flag laws would, and they would better protect people's rights, and they would separate dangerous people from weapons. The other part of this is the, the background check. So in the background check thing, if you want to sell a gun, you could take the buyer in to a sheriff. They would have to run the background check and give you a certificate that says this person is is fit to buy the gun. It would be good for it's 90 days. It's a seller days. protection certificate because it is against the law to sell a gun to someone who shouldn't have one. But right now the law says... If you recklessly do that, you are criminally liable. He also wants to change that to say if you are merely negligent, you are violating the law. So he's saying this is an easy way. Gun owners are going to want to sell their guns to people, only people who should have them, not people who shouldn't have them. And so this is going to be a big incentive for gun owners to get this seller protection certificate that would insulate them from criminal liability. Well, and DeWine came in to visit with us and talk about it, and he said, we, we drilled into it, is if, if I sell to somebody who shouldn't have it and bad things happen, am I negligent? And he said it would be his expectation that, yes, you could be. It was interesting because he was also asked the question about whether uh, not getting that, that order, that, that you know, the, the buyer is fine piece of paper, if I would be civilly negligent, like could I be sued if somebody commits mayhem with my gun after I sell it to him? And he said that's not part of what they did, but, but civil court does work that way. So instead of having a universal background check that, that says you must do this, this puts a lot of onus on the person selling the gun. If I sell you my gun and you're a bad person and you do bad things, I might not just get criminally charged. I might lose my house because the people who you harm come after me. It's a bit Right, it's a bit especially lowering the standard to, to just negligence. Right. So this is all about expectations. When he first said what he wanted to do, we immediately saw the Republicans in the legislature say, not a chance. Uh, He has worked pretty hard with them to come up with something he thinks can pass muster. He seemed very confident when he talked to us that this would pass. What do you think the chances are based on your knowledge of the legislature? Based on my knowledge of the legislature, I think that they will do something but I would not be surprised if they water this down and make it mushier. We, as I said, Dewan came in to visit with us, and uh, he did have some interesting things to say. Let's give him a listen. Big picture, three things. Uh, whatever we do, we want to have a chance of passing the legislature. We want it to respect the Second Amendment, be constitutional. And third, we want it to actually make a difference. Uh, and I said at the time, all 17 points uh, will make a difference. Uh, they all were, will save lives. The idea is that good citizens are supposed to 
know who they're selling their gun to. And we're now giving them, through this bill, we would be giving them a, a very convenient way to cover the situations when they don't know who they're selling their gun to. We're, we're making it really easy. A duty to plan. I think you're, yeah, I think pretty much, all, it's not per se legally, but I'm telling you, if, 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 you know, if I go into court and I say, yeah, I didn't know him, I've never known him, uh, and I now have the ability to get a personal protection order, I'm negligent. Okay. I mean, you're just negligent. I mean, you're, you're, you're stupid if you're, you're negligent and stupid. So the, uh, when, when DeWine brought in, he brought in his team to, to talk about this, and he had a, a former prosecutor with him who seemed to feel very strongly that with these tools, there'd be a greater confidence by hospitals and others in basically committing somebody. I mean, I don't think they use the word civil commitment, but that's what we're talking right. about they here. They did use the word probate. Uh, right, the probate system. And again, it's for people who have alcohol and drug problems who have done something that have made mom or somebody worry. The question was asked about, what about the guy who goes back out into the street after the civil commitment is over uh, and and somebody in the family has a bunch of guns? And his answer was, look, most of the time... This is a family member that's come in that said, I'm really worried about Laura. Laura's going off the deep end. <laughs> she has access to guns. And he believes. I'm glad you said that. I've noticed that <laughs> And he believes that what will happen. Oh, the part of the law is this gives the power to the judge to order up the removal of the guns from Laura's right. house. Like, you're still committed. The judge says, go to that house, get all their guns. The, the, the People can have them sold or they can have them placed with somebody else that's not at their house. But that ultimately, until a judge takes another look at Laura and says, you know, I don't think Laura is a danger to herself anymore. Laura is precluded from having a gun. Right. They, the judge has that option to look at, well, should we give this to a family member who doesn't live with the person or should we sell them? They, they gave a number of options. Of course, Laura, when she's okay, conceivably would be able to get her weapons back. Maybe she was just going through a rough patch and everything's she okay now. She does have to deal with me every day, so <laughs> completely understandable. Okay. Uh, another shocking story uh, out of Ohio um, government is involving health insurance and how many people in the state will lose it if an appeals court kills Obamacare. Right. This could affect nearly 2 million Ohioans, people who have cancer, diabetes, arthritis, any number of conditions. The Affordable Care Act requires those to be covered, and this Texas case would ba basically throw the whole thing out. There was a time, Jane, when <laughs> Republicans across the nation would have done anything possible to kill Obamacare. But it's amazing how times change. We're seeing Republicans come to its defense one was Ohio, uh, the Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost. What did he do? Well, uh, just to go back to what you said, we saw this a lot in the 2018 election where Republicans were really scrambling to say how much they wanted to protect people with pre-existing conditions because there's a recognition that that part of the law is quite popular. People believe that's only fair. So Attorney General Yost has uh, filed a brief in that case saying the part of the pre-existing condition part of the law should be severable from the rest of it, and we, we shouldn't throw 
the baby out with the bathwater. Um, also coming from the federal courts, this time the Supreme Court, we have a case that could affect abortion in Ohio. So what's going on with that? That's a Louisiana case that the U.S. Supreme Court just agreed to hear, and it involves doctors, uh, abortion doctors being required to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. Ohio doesn't have an identical law, but it's got something having to do with transfer agreements with uh, abortion clinics being required to have transfer agreements with local hospitals. And this has caused, I think, a couple of them to, to close already. So what the right to life people hope happens here is that if the court rules in favor of this law, it'll be an opportunity to overturn Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. which wouldn't outlaw abortion outright, but would leave it up to states to make their rules. And as you know, in Ohio, our leaders are very much opposed to abortion. So you know what would happen here. Over the last 10 years, the availability of abortions has steadily dropped in Ohio. Last week, we talked about the number hitting an all-time low in 2018 since they started keeping track in the 70s. Do you know, though, how much the number of clinics has dropped? You know, Do we know what it was 10 or 20 years ago compared to what it is now? It seems like we're down to single digits, and yes. it wasn't like that then. D- depending on whose figures you want to use, uh, we have nine now and roughly double that a decade ago. And probably several decades ago, we probably had more than 50 of them. And if this law passes, we'll see it drop even right. more. While we had DeWine in the office to talk about guns, we did take advantage of the time with him to ask about the state of executions in Ohio. And when we pointed out to him, or we asked him whether his personal Christian beliefs might be behind the idea that we haven't had an execution in his first 10 months in office, he kind of grinned and did say, well, we haven't had any executions in Ohio. Mm -hmm. But then he became a little bit more serious and talked about where we stand uh, as a state with regard to executions. What was your takeaway from that? Well, you you had a straight-on view of the governor and his expressions. I was on the side, and I, I didn't see that. To me, he seemed to just be dispassionately explaining that Ohio law provides for one method of execution, and that's lethal injection. And the fact is we have difficulty getting these drugs because drunk companies don't want to be associated with you know, their products killing people. And therefore, the legislature needs to consider whether we want to introduce another execution method. And we had wondered when his term began whether those beliefs might block executions for the entirety of his time in office. Um, And you and I have a bit of a disagreement on our reading of him here. Uh, He we tried to get him to say whether he was happy with the current status of things, that that it's basically stopped. They can't get the drugs. And he was asked about, well, you have other drugs that you could use. And he basically said, yeah, but we buy those drugs to treat people. If we start using them for executions, the people who make them will stop selling to us. Right. So we're at a complete standstill on executions. Tried to get him to acknowledge whether or not that's okay with him or not, because he's obviously not doing anything to change it, and he wouldn't go there. He he would not go there, no. And as I said, I think you saw something on his face that I didn't, but I've just always seen him as a law and order guy, and uh, 
wanting to uphold whatever the law of the land is. And right now, the law of the land, you know, we do have a death penalty in Ohio. Yeah. When we first asked it, the <laughs> slip where he just kind of grinned and said, well, we haven't had any executions. It was a, uh, the, the people sitting next to me in the room had the same reaction. So you, you think he's he's happy. He's just yeah, he, happy I, not to have to preside over any executions. I, I don't think I think his person the same belief system that has him fighting so hard to wipe out abortions has him opposed to taking any life. And I think as governor what he's doing is being very content with a situation where it's not happening. It's interesting because he won't say that right. um, because he's a law and order guy and he doesn't want to alienate those kind of those those voters who might support him if he seeks reelection. But the his initial I wish there was a video of it because the message was very clear. He's delighted with the current current state. <laughs> Maybe of after he leaves office, you and I will be able to settle this. We'll get an answer. <laughs> hey, we're from a quarter him. of the way in, and so far I'm right. <laughs> The, there's one other thing I wanted to talk to you about, uh, the HB6 fight, the people that are trying to get this thing in front of the voters, the bail, the big $900 million bailout of First Energy Solutions, nuclear plants. There's a big day coming up Friday in this fight. What What is that? Right. This just gets more interesting by the day. I mean, earlier or on previous podcasts, we've talked about the one, the pro HB6 side arguing that this is a tax suddenly. Now we've got the anti-HB6 side saying, basically challenging the very referendum process that they are using to try to overturn it because it's pretty clear they don't think they have enough time to get all these signatures. So they say it's too onerous, there's not enough time you know, to get all your language approved, to get it to the ballot, that the requirement that you have signatures from 44 counties uh, takes away the voice of certain people. Anyway, there, there, but, but there one the one argument that I thought resonated was we we have a system. You could argue it's onerous that once you get the the thing approved, that you have 90 days to collect the signatures. But they didn't have 90 days. They had to wait 38 days into that process, more than a third of the allotted time by state law, waiting for the attorney general to sign off on the summary language, right. during which time they're not allowed to collect signatures. I don't know. If I were a judge, I think I would look at that and think that does stack the deck, right? Right. But I, I think maybe the first time around, they didn't get the language right. So some might argue, hey, that's your problem. But but you're right. It was a short window of time for them to do that. They're also saying that the requirement that circulators make their information public, their names and so forth, is leading to harassment and bribery and all sorts of things, uh, actions against their circulators that are inhibiting their ability to collect signatures. So you asked about Friday. The judge, the federal district judge who's hearing this, has scheduled oral arguments. So Friday morning, watch cleveland.com and we'll be reporting on what happens. Because they're seeking an injunction that would give them more time right. to collect they, signatures. They want more time. That's what that's what the end game is here for them. Well, Jane, thank you for your wisdom. We'll see you again soon. Coming up, a conversation with Cleveland City Hall reporter Bob Higgs about a criminal prosecution of the city fire chief. Bob Higgs now joins us on This Week in the CLE. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? This is a strange one, Bob. A judge has ordered the prosecution of the Cleveland fire chief on the charge that he violated the city charter by campaigning for the mayor two years ago. 
What makes it odd is that it took the fire union going to court to get the case prosecuted. So let's start there. How did the fire union get involved? They've been at odds with the chief over several things, Uh, work schedules, promotions, uh, equipment. And because of that, the union filed this complaint as a way to try and get rid of the chief. Um, And they couldn't get the city to move on it. They first complained to the city that the chief violated terms of the city charter that prohibit civil service employees from getting into politics. And the city wouldn't do anything, so the union said, fine. And then they marched off to court. They filed a civil suit in Cuyahoga County, and they filed this criminal complaint in Cleveland Municipal. So wouldn't this be a misdemeanor, something normally handled in the municipal court? So should the city prosecutor be handling it? It is a misdemeanor. The problem is the city prosecutor, who typically would handle this case, is has a conflict because it's against the city, effectively. It's mm-hmm. against the, one of the top city employees, a member of the mayor's cabinet. But he didn't declare a conflict, right? Because the city's basic stance was, uh, this isn't a charter violation because it's a nonpartisan race, which is pretty much utter nonsense. But he never, the, the city prosecutor didn't act on this, right? No. I mean, he didn't say, I can't do it. He just didn't respond, and the only response I think we got was what you got, which was the the city charter doesn't apply to a nonpartisan race. Right, and we got finally the law director to step in, but the prosecutor's office wasn't moving on it at all. And then the law director said, you know, we're going to recuse ourselves if it gets to that. But then the union went to the Cleveland Municipal Court to get an order for prosecution because the city just saying— we're not going to handle this, doesn't make it happen. Right. And what's interesting is everybody involved with this has treated it like kryptonite. They went to municipal court and the chief judge, Judge Early from the municipal court said, we're not dealing with this. And they went to the Supreme Court and got an outside judge appointed. But the, the union went and they filed a complaint. Any citizen can do this where you swear out an affidavit that has a criminal complaint in it. And then it's up to the court to address it. So now where do we stand? Is there a prosecutor assigned to this? Will this case be prosecuted somewhere? We just got that actually today. We just posted a story up that says, and uh, the chief uh, deputy for Lucas County's prosecutor, uh, who's in charge of their criminal division, has been assigned to handle this case. They have a visiting judge who's a retired judge, the Supreme Court appointed. He's from Perrysburg. And now yesterday, this uh, uh, assistant prosecutor from Lucas County asked both sides for all their files so he can start prepping for the, to pursue the case. So does this guarantee that the chief will be charged? And if he is charged and convicted, does he automatically lose his job? The, the guarantee that he'll be charged is a little fuzzier because you have prosecutorial discretion involved, which okay. is really broad. But I'll tell you, I've read the charter through two or three times, and the law director contends it doesn't apply because Cleveland's races are, are nonpartisan. And there is an exemption for nonpartisan races in the ban on civil service employees politicking. Mm-hmm. Except there's also a specific provision in there that says – the mayor's office, the mayor's election is one of the races that it covers. Oh. So 
I'm not so sure she's correct in how she's interpreted this. They may pursue this, and if he is convicted, he will lose his job, presumably. Um, I talked with a law professor at a case at one point. He said the only question is, does a judge have to impose everything, or can is there some room wiggle room in there? But presumably, he would lose his job. The question is, will he get fined and go to jail? Okay, moving on. You also had a piece on one of the most tragic stories of the year, a six-year-old Cleveland girl asleep in her bed at 1 a.m. on a Saturday was hit in the head by one of 22 rifle rounds that were fired into her home, and she died later that day. This royaled City Hall. It, uh, th- there's been some outrage brewing over crime in the neighborhoods all along and, and great frustration, and this really set them off. And... The, the girl died over the weekend, and by Monday morning, one of the members of council had pulled together this news conference where they were telling people, it's time, folks, for you to break the code of silence and speak up when you know something, because people know who did this stuff. So at the end of your story, you had this surprising statement by Councilman Anthony Hairston. He said that people who stay silent in these cases are as bad as the killers. That seems pretty harsh. I think what you see there is a sense of how frustrating it is because quite often with these cases, the people who are the victims know who the perpetrators were and quite often they're afraid to speak up. Um, I've heard them, uh, members of council and others talk about why don't the, the pastors preach from the podiums. It's time to speak up, folks. We have to take back our neighborhoods. But there is a, a significant fear factor out there, too. I mean, we were talking about this case, and it said, it seemed like even the mother is too afraid to talk about you know what happened, and people are just terrified. I don't know that that makes them as bad as killers. Well, because... think about it, though. If somebody is willing to sit outside a house at 1 a.m. and shoot 22 rifle rounds into the house, it's completely conceivable that if they think you're right. talking, uh, they're going to come right. shoot up your house. Yeah, I right. think there's real fear out there. Right. And, so and for, for Harrison, say, that's yeah. frustration because they haven't found a way to get over that fear. Um, if you talk to the police chief, he'll say, yeah, I think we can. Somebody out there knows that we just need to get through to people, though, that if they stay silent, they're sort of accepting status quo because it's very hard to solve some of these cases without tips. Yeah, it's it's a bad, bad all around. We did have a happy ending to another sad Cleveland story. We had the discovery of 84 badly neglected chihuahuas. People originally feared the dogs might not be saved, but you had a story that gave us a little hope. Yeah, they the chihuahuas were all found in a house in Cleveland uh, a couple of weeks ago and living essentially as a pack of dogs in this house. They hadn't had much human contact, so they were scared to death of humans. The people at the APL thought the dogs might not have ever seen grass because they'd never been outside. Uh, a lot of them were, were quite thin. Some of them had medical conditions because they hadn't had veterinary care. So they brought these dogs in, which was a big strain on the shelter, and then they found places to start parsing them out. Other shelters stepped up. Um, some of them went to foster homes so they can recover a little bit. And then a lot of people came in from greater Cleveland to adopt them. So they're down to about, last time I checked a few days ago, they were down to about 12 in the shelter. And they had about another 20 that were in foster homes. But all of them, it looks like, will live. Um, and they were all getting medical care. Uh, several of them had 
ailments that needed attention that simply had not been addressed. Well, it's good to hear they're going to be okay. Thanks for stopping by, Bob. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Welcome to the podcast, Troy Smith. How's it going? So Troy's here on the eve of the week when we expect Rock Hall nominees to be announced to talk about what we might see and what he thinks we should see. And my first question is whether you think, Troy, we could have an induction ceremony in Cleveland next spring featuring Tina Turner and the Doobie Brothers. Uh, Doobie Brothers more likely than Tina Turner, probably. Really? Uh, I think it's very political, right? So like, I know for a fact the Doobie Brothers management and publicity team are pushing for a rock hall induction as like a sales tactic for them. Tina Turner, I don't think she cares right now. So I think that might be the difference. So what do they do? Like send stuff to the voters oh. and say, here's your free Doobie Brothers CD. In, in this industry, you know, you get like, you know, I, here's an example, right? I, I wrote a story about Doobie Brothers winning a poll at Gold Derby uh, from classic rock fans wanting them to get in. Five minutes after I post it, I get an email from the publicist who says, can you change that photo to this one? So then I know they're very active. And I said, what, what was the problem with the photo? She's like, we're just really pushing for a lot of things this year. And I emailed her back and said, like a rock hall induction? She said, fingers crossed. Well, you know, the, look, the Doobie Brothers, if you go back and listen to that Best of the Doobies album that they put out, that, that, that they had nonstop hits. I'm a little bit surprised at what you say about Tina Turner, though, because I can't remember if it's the Washington Post, New York Times. Somebody just did a huge takeout on her. She lives in Switzerland, I think, uh, and and went deep on the status of her life and what her philosophy is. It kind of vaulted her into the consciousness again. And remember, when Stevie Nicks got in, there was criticism. We talked about it. Should Stevie Nicks be the first woman to be inducted twice before somebody like a Tina Turner. Tina Turner was the example. I mean, it's it's a weird... You have to look at the Rock Hall's process, right? There's 25 guys going to a nominating committee <laughs> meeting. They woke up that, this morning, that morning, thinking, I get to pick two bands to go in the Rock Hall, and we can argue about them. You know, they had one guy, uh, Paul Schaefer, the, you know, who's on the committee, his heads up the backing band at all the ceremonies, right? He posts on his Twitter, I'm going to the meeting to go for Willie Nelson. And you're just like, where did that come wow. from? You know? So I wouldn't be surprised to see Willie Nelson wow. on, on the ballot. So so let's go through who you think we'll see, and then let's go through who you think we should see. I think, you know, just statistical patterns say that Depeche Mode gets nominated because they go every other year with Kraftwerk for some reason. Uh, the Notorious B.I.G., they go with one hip-hop act a year. I say he takes LL Cool J's place. And uh, John Sykes, who's going to become the chairman on January 1st with Jan Wenner stepping down, he's mentioned 